Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. I had teachers calling me saying, I'm like losing it. You know, I had so many requirements for patients, like referrals for patients that I had to stop having a wait list. And I was like, I can't just be in this bubble. I need to find a way to teach the skills because my grandmother taught them to me. And and I'm sitting here now as a Harvard professor because she had the ability to say, Luana, you need to approach instead of avoiding. And I, I just felt like if I don't do it now, we as the world are missing an opportunity to help ourselves learn how to manage our brain. And so this is my call for the world to say, listen, let's like get ahead of this. Let's do prevention, early intervention before we have a bigger crisis on our hands. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Luana, welcome to The Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. It's a pleasure to be here with you today, Serene. Uh, it is my pleasure to have you here. So you have a new book called Bold Move, all of which we will get into. And as you know from having heard some of my interviews, I will start asking you questions that have nothing to do with that. And I know part of the answer to this question. But I wanted to start asking you, where in the world did you grow up? And how did that end up influencing the choices that you've made with your life and your career? So I grew up in Brazil. Um, I was born in a little town called Governador Valadares and then moved to Belo Horizonte. And, you know, I think growing up in Brazil, especially with a single mother and facing a lot of adversity, I think it built a lot of resilience, allowed me to understand the world in such a way that the world wasn't going to be given to me. I had to go get it. I think that's why I got to bold move is because, you know, I never could imagine at 10 that today I'd be where I am. and so. I'm fully Brazilian and I'm fully American, but that early upbringing, that sense of like love for family and culture and belonging, I think just made me a better human being. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, I, I know from having read the book that your mom basically sold brooms. Did you grow up in a favela or were you sort of like just a little bit above that? We were a little bit above that. And our yeah. story is sort of interesting because when my mom came from a family that had a lot of, you know, farming and financial stability, and then she married my dad who had 
pretty much nothing. And then my grandfather really lost everything. I remember when I saw him in the last moment of his life, he was in, you know, in the public nursing home, which in Brazil, I have to say, is just awful. So this man went from like having everything to like gambling and women and losing everything. And as a consequence, our family became poorer and poorer. And, you know, when my mom and my father finally split, which was amazing in many ways, it left us in the situation that, you know, my mom to this day says, I don't remember those days, but, you know, I remember a time when I, there's this choice of eating and there's a potato. And I said, you know, I, I thought to myself, I must have been 12 or 13 and thought to myself, you know what? I shouldn't, like my mom and my sister should eat. And that didn't happen a lot. Um, because my mom is remarkable. This woman was like, I'm just going to do it. And so she like made uniforms and then she made underwear and then she made, you know, clothes for companies. And then she figured out how to sell brooms and like she would travel places and get this amazing sort of opportunity to just reinvent herself. And eventually it stabilized and was okay. Just there were a couple of two years there. They were like pretty tough. Yeah. Well, I, I guess the reason I asked that is, you know, like when I've seen documentaries, when I've seen movies and having spent plenty of time in Brazil myself, I feel like for a lot of these kids who grew up in poor environments, you mentioned that you couldn't imagine where you'd end up today. But I, I feel like what I've seen is sort of the narrative of, OK, it's either, you know, drug dealer, professional football star, you know, and the latter is unlikely for 90 percent of kids. So like, what is it that separates someone like you? who grew up in the same environment from somebody who ends up uh, in a life of crime or drugs or any of the horrible things that end up happening to a lot of those people, because you can't really discount the role that environment plays. Cause a lot of those kids are not given the same advantages. I know this because the school that I went to in Brazil, when we got there, we realized, wait a minute, these are like the richest kids in all of Brazil. And as you know, when people say my parents are well off in Brazil, it's not my dad's a doctor. It's more like my dad owns the hospital. Mm-hmm. That's absolutely true. I think there are a few things that separate, you know, the pathways. Um, and for me, I, I was lucky enough. My mom started to date my stepdad. My stepdad's family had means and they shipped me to leave with the person I consider to be my grandmother. And, you know, she changed the trajectory of my life, not only by sort of creating a more stable home front, but this woman was remarkable on being able to understand that you know, there was a different way to see the world. And she forced me to build what we know now um, in psychology is cognitive flexibility, which is just a fancy word to basically say the way you talk to yourself, the way you see the world, you know, it can be black and white, like I'm going to mess up this interview and get me anxious, or it can be more flexible. And I, today, I know that she basically taught me two things, to shift my approach and forced me to approach instead of avoiding things. That allowed me to have cognitive flexibility. So when I finally got out of Brazil, my narrative was no longer, I'm poor and I'm not going to be able to do anything. It was like, okay, life is going to be damn hard, but there is a possibility of a different world. And I think some of those kids don't have that. In fact, that's why I do the work I do today in inner city. A lot of my research is training paraprofessionals, so people with no education, how to train, you know, inner city youth on the skills that my grandmother taught me that then I realized was science. Because to me, that's what they don't have. Mm -hmm. Well, speaking of coming here, uh, those were some of the funniest stories, I think, in your book. Uh, talk to me about what you found shocking and how old were you when you came to the United States? 
So I first came as an exchange student. I was um, 17. I came in my senior year in Brazil. Um, and the first thing that was shocking to me in America is how nobody had dinners together. Like people just sat in front of the TV and like <laughs> ate. Yeah. And then my American family, God bless them. They were, they, they are, I still call them mom and dad. I have a strong relationship with them. My American sisters are amazing, but they didn't cook. So that was the other thing. Like nobody cooked. There was like the dinner frozen meals. And I, so I wanted to cook the first time and I wanted to make the steak. I'm Brazilian. I eat a lot of meat and I wanted to make this garlic steak and you had to see their face. <laughs> like the house smells like garlic. And I was like, of course it's great. And they're like, we don't really like that. So it's funny you mentioned the dinners because I think that that was one of the things that I noticed almost immediately after spending six months in Brazil when I came back was how rushed American life seemed. And I remember like in Brazil, like you'll sit in a restaurant for upwards of two to three hours. I, and I pretty sure I remember some woman telling me on the plane that, yeah, when they go to New York, she and like three or four Brazilian friends will stay at a restaurant and they'll all make reservations at the same restaurant. So they can just extend this dinner for three to four hours. Why do you think that sort of sense of community is not more prevalent in American culture? You know, I think my experience, so I can speak for as a, as an individual in American culture, is that you're taught to just do more. That's the only way to belong and be good in this. It's like every moment that you're just in leisure, you're wasting, that you could be doing something that, quote unquote, is more important. And I think in the Brazilian culture, the sense of like belonging as a community, as a family, and, and it's consistent with the Harvard study that shows that, you know, your relationships are so important. And for us, it's, I don't know if it's because it's, just a, it's a different way of seeing the world, but I agree with you. My, my five-year-old can sit for a three-hour dinner without making a mess because he's totally like used to it. Every day at dinner, we sit for probably an hour and a half as a family. And it's just what the culture tells you to do. And Quite honestly, so nice, isn't it? It really is. I mean, that's one thing I absolutely loved about it is is that I remember just I, I would sit with this friend from Colombia and we would have a dinner that would last upwards of three or four hours, uh, and it'd be eleven o'clock at night, and we're still there having started the dinner at around seven o'clock, which I don't think I've ever sat in a restaurant in the United States for four hours talking to a friend. And think what you get from those experiences. Though you walk out, I don't know, but I feel like energized. And, and there's always like something you learn about that person that perhaps you didn't know or there's a level of support. It just feels to me like, I don't know, it feels to me like a value alignment. Like I anchor, like it's an anchor in the world, those dinners for me. Well, talk about one other thing, because I, I, I think the funniest thing uh, about your own experience here was the idea of bargaining when you shopped. And I laughed because my grandmother had that exact experience when she went to Walmart. Um, so, you know, I grew up bargaining for everything. I saw my mom bargaining for everything. And so, um, when I first got to the U.S. as an exchange student, you know, you don't have a lot of money and I didn't have winter boots and, you know, I needed winter boots. And so my American family took me to the mall. There's a star called Payless. And so I choose the boots and I'm about to pay. And let me be very honest with everybody listeners. I spoke very little English. Like I, in fact, at Chicago O'Hara, when I first landed, um, I went to order pizza. I was starving. And the guy said they only, they had pepperoni. At that point in my life, I had never seen pepperoni pizza. So I said, yes. And then my brain decided that pepperoni was peppers and peppers are green. So I went back and I said, is pepperoni green? The guy just like laughed at me. 
So that was my level. I share this because that was my level of English. And so I'm at Payless. I have this boots on my hand and I asked for a 50 cents discount. I literally did. <laughs> and I only remember this because my American family just is like hushing me. They're like, no, no, we'll pay. And like, they became so embarrassed. And I was like, what am I doing wrong? Says pay less. Like I should pay less. And well, I guess that's not how it goes. I learned yeah. fast. Well, my grandmother did the same thing at Walmart. She like, you know, they're scanning all the items for the checkout and she's turning to mother. She's like, what are you doing? Why are we paying for all this without bargaining? She's like, it doesn't work like that here. Uh, oh, I remember. Really. So you mentioned that your husband was Mexican. One thing I always wonder about people when they, uh, you know, you marriages across two different cultures is when you're raising kids, how do you preserve and integrate, you know, uh, the, your heritage into your the life of your child, particularly when that child is being raised here in the United States? What a wonderful question. So we had a lot of conversations. My husband, um, is David and David and I had a lot of conversations about this before having Diego. And so the decision started with even like, what name can we give to this child that can be pronounced in Portuguese and Spanish the same? You know, I had thought about the name and in the US and there's several names that we came up with that like the Americans just couldn't pronounce like Rafael. An American can't pronounce a Rafael correct. And so that was the beginning of it. Then we talked to, to our pediatrician a lot about how do we maintain the language. And since our son is born, David will only speak Spanish with him, no matter what context it is. I only speak Portuguese to Diego. And he just started kindergarten and he had to have remediation for English because his first language, Spanish and Portuguese, 50 and 50. And it's amazing for us. Like he sits at dinner and will ask, Papai, quiero una fresa. Mamãe, me dá um morango. And if somebody's sitting there that's in English, he's like, can I have a strawberry, please? And he does without thinking. And so I think language to me is like the gateway to culture. The other is travel. Like Diego has been to Brazil three or four times, to Mexico three or four times. You know, it's important to us that he grows close to his cousins and his whole family, which is not in the U.S. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Selling a little or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact... You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. 
Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember, folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Well, it's funny that you brought up language of all things, because that was usually the first thing I thought of. I thought, well, if I don't marry an Indian girl, the first thing to go will be language. And to this day, I still can't deconstruct how I learned my native language. But the fact that he can switch between Portuguese and Spanish so easily, especially when the words are so similar, that's that's amazing. Yeah, I, I both my husband and I agree with language, so maybe the genetics helped there. But he he he's very proud of it. He will tell everybody, I speak three languages. And he does. Yeah, I mean, at the age of five, like I, I always have thought it's absurd that we don't teach kids foreign languages until they get to junior high. Like, wait a minute, why wouldn't you just start this in kindergarten when they'll learn it in like a week? I learned my native language in six weeks and I have no memory of anybody ever pulling me aside and saying, this is what this word means. Exactly, because you learn by just understanding it, people are talking to you, and then next thing you know, you're speaking it. Well, so... Before we get into the book, I want to hit one last point. I know that you and both your husband are educators. Um, you work in probably the most elite educational institution in the world. I'm curious, when you look at education systems, both here and in Brazil, what do you see as the big differences? And also, given the sort of current state of education, if you were tasked with redesigning the entire thing from the ground up, what would you change? You know, I've been listening to your podcast, and I just love that you're hitting one of the biggest problems we have in the world um, with this question. Because so much of what we learn about ourselves and the world and our way of thinking comes from early education. And, you know, I'm going to hit it from the domain that I see the biggest problem, which is mental health, right? We have a mental health crisis in the world. And education 
education is where we could fix a lot of this. We're, we teach kids about their thinking, perhaps in some systems, not all, but we don't teach kids about their brain, how their brain functions. You know, I've been working with this inner city kids, teaching them what's known as cognitive behavior therapy and having them rip it apart. And one of them said to me, you know, I get to learn about sex ed and I get to learn about, you know, eating healthy. Why doesn't anybody teach me how to regulate my brain? And that is where I'd start. I'd start from the age in kindergarten. Kids need to be getting higher doses of social emotional learning, especially the kids in less privileged settings because they don't learn it at home. Their parents never were taught to regulate themselves. And what do we know scientifically? If you are on, on your emotional brain, if you're on fight, fight or freeze, you cannot think critically. And here we are asking kids who are scared, sitting in a classroom to learn. It is just impossible. And I know a lot of us are trying to really help schools think about social emotional learning, but it's just pockets here and there. To me, if I was going to redo it, I would do a federal mandate. I'll have the president basically say, Emotional health is so important that every educator needs to understand a little bit about the brain so that every time a teacher is touching a youth, every time a janitor sees a kid in school, that they are equipped to be able to bring the emotional temperature down. And this can be very simple. You know, my five-year-old, I say to Diego all the time, when he gets really upset, I say, okay, what part of your brain are you in? And he now can tell me that he's in the back of his brain, his emotional brain. I said, okay. Can we label your emotions? What are you feeling like now? Let's just slow it down. Creating a pause for a kid is so, so important because that kid's spinning. They can't control their emotions. Like he's five. His brain is telling him there's a lion in front of him and I'm asking him to slow down. And by just slowing down the adult, right? Because to help kids, we have to regulate the adult first. And that's usually not what parents do. Let's talk about that. Like, I need to be calm to be able to calm down my kid. And usually where the parent goes is, no, 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 do it my way. Well, you just made your kid more anxious. Yeah. Well, so it's a long answer. I'm sorry. But like, no, no, I, I'm to, laughing I, because I'm just imagining all these moments with my mother where I'm holding like a dish in my hand. She was like, be careful, be careful. You're going to drop it. And I was like, you realize you're going to increase the odds that I drop it by freaking out, right? Let, that's, that's, that's a great example. That's what I'm talking about is like, We've been talking so much about teens' mental health in the country, how important it is, but we're forgetting that we have to teach the adults, manage, like managing that kid to manage themselves first. And, and that starts by training them on basic emotional health so they can have some cognitive flexibility, so they can slow down their brain before the kid escalates. And I've seen remarkable results on my inner city work when you teach adults to regulate themselves. It's just, it's so powerful. So sorry to go so long. I just no, love no, this stuff. Not at all. So I, I mean, I think that makes a perfect segue into the actual content in the book. Uh, what was the impetus for this book? Like what made you write this book and why now? So I hit a place in my career that for 10 years now, I've been training paraprofessionals in inner city, trying to teach the skills to as many paraprofessionals who work with youth as possible. And then I hit this point of like, it's a drop in a bucket, like it's just not moving. And so I was really frustrated by the fact that, you know, it takes 17 years from science to get to practice. We know that only 14% gets there. And when we talk about inner city youth, we know that everybody that's touching them don't know the skills. So 
I was frustrated. And then I had the privilege of creating a course within Harris. And I was talking to Dan about this and he's like, just write it. And I was like, oh, and he's like, I will help you get in, you know, a, a publicist and all of this. I didn't know anything about the, the, you know, publishing world. But then the pandemic, this was like as the pandemic hit. And then I got even more um, motivated because the reality was we saw anxiety increase doubled up by CDC data. We had, I had teachers calling me saying, I'm like losing it. You know, I had so many requirements for patients, like referrals for patients that I had to stop having a wait list. And I was like, I can't just be in this bubble. I need to find a way to teach the skills because my grandmother taught them to me. And, and I'm sitting here now as a Harvard professor because she had the ability to say, Luana, you need to approach instead of avoiding. And I, I just felt like if I don't do it now, we as the world are missing an opportunity to help ourselves learn how to manage our brain. And so this is my call for the world to say, listen, let's like get ahead of this. Let's do prevention, early intervention before we have a bigger crisis on our hands. Mm -hmm. Well, let's get into the actual framework because you broke this down beautifully into parts. And I love people who can do take really complex ideas and break them into simple frameworks that make it easy to understand. But let's start with avoidance. You say early on in the book that what I've learned throughout my life, clinical work and research, is that there's one common denominator that tends to get all of us stuck. And that is what I call psychological avoidance. Psychological avoidance is any response to a perceived threat that brings immediate emotional relief, but comes with long-term negative consequences. So talk to me about you know why we avoid things, uh, even though we, we get emotional relief. Uh, that's short-term, which is beneficial, but even though it's negative for us in the long term. Yeah. So I go back to the example of my grandmother. When I moved in with her, um, it was a big city. And literally, I went from being super outgoing, outgoing to like avoiding talking to strangers. I just, my brain basically said to me, people are not going to like me. You know, they're not going to want to talk to me. Everybody in this town knows a lot more than I do. And so my grandmother noticed this and would ask me questions like, but why don't you invite friends over? You always usually have friends around. I was like, no, no, I just need to study. The school here are harder. And she'd be like, Saturday, we can have people over for coffee or tea. And I'd be like, oh, no, no, I, I need to like, you know, learn more about this stuff. And basically every time my grandmother would bring up this idea of me going towards strangers, talking to people, having friends at our house, I would avoid. And, and, I'd feel better in that moment because my brain would say, well, if I invite them over and they don't like me, then I'm going to be like an outcast and it's going to be horrible. And, and so your question was, why do we avoid? Well, we avoid because we are biologically wired to walk away from anything that feels like a threat. Now, that makes a lot of sense. If there's an ambulance just rushing towards you in the middle of the street and you just dodge, that makes a lot of sense. That's a real threat. But the brain, although smart, is very limited on the ability to separate a real threat, that ambulance, versus perceived threat, which in my case was my brain basically saying that every stranger is going to think that they don't like me. Once the brain senses threat for everyone, including you and anybody listening to us, it goes on fight, flight, or freeze. And when it's perceived threat, we'll do whatever the hell it takes to not feel that discomfort. So we avoid. It makes sense. Like biologically, it makes sense. The problem is, had my grandmother not interfered, 
I very likely would have developed what's called social phobia. And I very likely would have changed the entire trajectory of my life because what we know with that diagnosis is that people have less education. They make less money because they can't face other people. And so although biologically avoidance makes sense, it just limits our lives tremendously, right? And especially in the domain of anxiety. I can't tell you how many people call me. They're like, get rid of my anxiety. I wish I could. We can't. We are all going to have some level of anxiety. It's not the anxiety is the problem. It's what we do when we're anxious. And if what we do is walk out of a plane because you're afraid the plane is going to crash, then you can't get on another plane, right? That's the problem. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, we had Britt Frank here who wrote a book called The Science of Being Stuck. And uh, she talked about the, there being sort of the secondary benefit to avoidance. And I wanted to bring back a clip from her to get your perspective on it. Take a listen. Most people asso- like really associate partnership with loss of freedom. If your system thinks that once you pick a person, then it's over for you, it's going to be highly incented to either not find someone or to pick a series of unavailable people. Because if that's the story, that's a big story. So how do you change the story? You can't change unless you first name it. So the first order of business is no one wants to admit that there are benefits because all behavior, even suboptimal behavior is functional. Otherwise, the behavior wouldn't be there. So. I'm curious about that. I mean, your research seems to overlap with that. So I wanted to ask you about it. I I think she's right on point. The reality is avoidance always works short term. So that there is a benefit to behavior. So, you know, every time I didn't go to the mall with my grandmother, I felt momentarily better. I mean, that's what maintains it, that there is a benefit to it. The question is, is that benefit outweighing the costs? That's mm-hmm. where I go. But she's absolutely right. Everything we do has a, pro, a strength and a pros and a cons, I guess I would say. Yeah. Well, okay. So that takes us nicely into the sort of next section. So I, I think, you know, consciously, I mean, she and I were discussing basically the fact that I'm, you know, 45 and single, much the dismay of an Indian mother whose basically only worry is that her kids get married. Um, yeah. And one of the things that you say is the discomfort we feel when we're confronted with new information that doesn't fit into our current understanding and belief system about the world is cognitive dissonance. And when you have dissonance, you tend to avoid. So how do you resolve that tension so that you break this tendency to avoid, particularly in the face, you know, new information, confirmation bias and all of the biases that kind of drive our behavior? I mean, so you brought up the fact that you're 45 and single, right? And yes, I can imagine an Indian mom being really not happy with this. So there's right there a little bit of dissonance, just yeah. a little bit. Um, you know, having um, lots of clients from India, I understand the pressure there. Um, but let's talk about you for a second, if you don't mind. Like when you think about going on a date or when you're dating, like what does your brain say? Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community. And that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this, you're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with tap to pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. So to be honest, there was a time when uh, I'd lived at my parents' house for the better part of six years and I got to San Diego and I thought to myself, all right, like finally out of my parents' house, now the next problem to solve is to meet somebody. And so every date was like, okay, I'm trying to find the person I'm going to marry. And I realized, one, it just made me super anxious and nervous at every date. It probably freaked people out unconsciously. And a friend said something to me that always stayed with me. He said, you're treating this as a problem to solve instead of a process to enjoy. That is so great. I loved it. So I love, thanks for sharing, by the way. Um, so your brain now had this problem, as your friend said, all right, and Every time that you went on a date, you were thinking about that date. You're not even present. What I hear is you're like in your head, like, is this the person? What is the checklist? How do I ensure this is the person? And then what happens is it just makes people more and more anxious, right? And then the next date you go, I don't know if that's what happened for you, um, Serena, but for most people that I work with, what happens is they, they already have a prediction that that date's not going to work. Because of the way the person looked, or there's a thing on their profile, or you know, you heard something. And then once you get to the date and the person says the one thing that may be different than what you expect, you go, see, that doesn't work. <laughs> uh, and it makes you feel much better, right? Like you're wrong, wrong date. 
the only problem is what you're doing here is you're training your brain to basically say no dates are going to work because you're never challenging. In fact, I'll share this. This happened with my husband. Um, I, you know, we went on this date. We met, 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 matched online and went on this first date. And we had this fantastic day, okay? He's an academic and I'm academic and it was great. And I call my sister and I'm telling my sister about this. And she goes, sounds like he like had a business meeting. And I was like, oh, yes, definitely a business meeting. See, this is not going to work. And I wanted to predict that this amazing date was not going to work because it fit somehow. And this like, maybe he's too academic, maybe this. And my brain wanted me to just not go on a second date with him. And it would have been such a mistake. It's like, he's the best thing that has ever happened to me. And yet that confirmatory bias wanted to confirm that somehow he was wrong because he's too academic. Therefore, he couldn't be fun. Therefore, he wouldn't be a good fit. Therefore, in, and what would confirm for me? My belief that I'm not enough, that nobody's really going to love me, that I'm not good enough to be in a relationship. And I nearly almost lost this amazing man because of my stupid brain. Well, talk to me about the different types of sort of behaviors that we categorize as avoidance, because you say it's important to note that sometimes reacting isn't avoidance. Being assertive, defending yourself against aggression and speaking your mind respectfully in a heated conversation are all examples that come to mind of ways in which you are behaving in a reactive way that's justified. So talk to me about sort of the ways uh, that, you know, avoidance is not avoidance or what we think of as avoidant behaviors. And what are some other forms of avoid avoidant behavior? So in the book, I talk about the three R's of avoidance, react, retreat, and remain. And so let, let's back up from those three R's for a second and just think about, okay, what makes it avoidance in, in terms of psychological avoidance and a problem versus not? And it's really is the function of what you're doing or not doing. So for example, a colleague of mine at a conference this week said to me, whenever she get a request that she does not want to do, she has to respond very quickly because if she doesn't say no right away, then her guilt kicks in and somehow she ends up saying yes to something that she really meant no. And so she responds to emails. They are clear no right away as a way to help her stay true to her value and her desire in that situation. I, on the other hand, I'm going to tell you, I respond to emails really quickly to make myself feel better. So if I get an email that scares me, makes me upset or whatever it is, I react. And the only function of responding fast is to make myself feel better. And that's what makes it avoidance because I'm not being thoughtful. I'm not being value-driven. I'm literally just avoiding discomfort. And this happened three days ago. As I was boarding to a conference, I got this email. I texted it to my husband. And his response with a bunch of emojis was, do not respond. It is avoidance. You respond right away. Can you think about this email before you react? And so and I was like, oh, God damn it. Yeah, I will think about it. I, by the way, I had composed a response already. I did not send because he stopped me. But I and I was ready. I was like, I'm, I'm so efficient. I just, I, I, I hate discomfort like everybody else. I hate anxiety. And so I tend to do react to make myself feel better. If the function is to just bring discomfort down, that is avoidance. And that's why I use this example to contrast that the same behavior, responding fast, for my colleagues, totally makes sense. For me, it's got me in a lot of trouble, I have to tell you. Don't you love it when people in your life remind you of your own work? Oh, my God. You know, with this, this book coming out, and it's such a vulnerable book for me, 
my husband's like this mirror. Like I, I, I tend to not to respond if I'll check in with him because I'm like, I could react a lot right now. So like, calm down, Luana. Pause, pause for a second. Yeah. I, I'll literally have people quoting me from my book and I'm like, oh, right. That's what I should do. <laughs> oh my God. That's going to happen to me. I can oh, see it. It is. I mean, <laughs> especially if it's your family members. Like I remember uh, when my other book audience of one came out a week after my sister calls us, how's it going? Well, I was like, it hasn't sold as many copies as I thought it would. She was like, you're an idiot. She was like, you literally wrote the exact opposite in the book. That's what the message of the book is, not to care about that. No wonder it's not selling. You don't believe what you wrote. Oh, oh I love it. Um, I want to meet your sister. She sounds awesome. Oh, she is. She's brilliant. Uh, well, let's talk about shifting. As you t- say that shifting changes our emotions by changing what we're saying to ourselves in the midst of challenging moments. It's the ability to take new perspectives, such as considering what a friend might say to overcome challenges. So the thing that, you know, I think I'm curious about is like in the midst of a challenging moment, most of us are incredibly reactive. Like we go, there's like no pause between stimulus and response. Like, you know, my mom is, you know, particularly good at pushing my buttons. Um, Just small things will just set me off. And, you know, and I'm kind of like, okay, that that reaction was completely unjustified for the situation. Yeah. So there's two things in your question that I love. The first one is this. Before we can learn to shift, we have to learn to pause. Right? For your mom, it sounds like any engagement with her has, and we all have this, by the way, people that, you know, I think of those as like buttons all over my body. And some people can press a button and it's not like go to red. But there are people in my life that I know if they press, like colleagues that try to steal my work, for example, when they get close to me, I know very likely whatever they say, doesn't matter what it is, it's going to go right, right away. And so the first thing is like, what does it look like to pause, right? Is it that before you engage with your mom, you're able to sort of just bring that kind of level of mindfulness? Well, she's going to push a button and I need to sort of be ready that she's going to push a button. Now, if she pushes an orange button, you might be able to rein in whatever it is that you wanted to do. She pushes the red button. For all of us, guess what? It's over. The game is over. We're going to react. <laughs> yeah. It's true. It's going to happen. And so the question then becomes, how big of a reaction, right? So, and I'll get to shift, I promise you. But like, before we shift, we need to understand that like, we have the ability to pause, right? Mm-hmm. And sometimes we might need some support. You maybe, you know, your sister or somebody else just going, hey, wait a minute. Like, this can lead to a little red moment. Then once we get to like, okay, I can pause my brain a little bit. And I'm not talking about red again, because red is like impossible. Then it really is to change the narrative. There's something that you're saying to yourself. I guarantee it. I don't know if you want to share in your own podcast or not, but I bet there's some conceptions about your mom that immediately will trigger. Actually, I'll share my own to not put you on the spot and then you can share if you want. But like, I just came back from Brazil and, you know, I've dealt with obesity my whole life. And I came back from Brazil. I was getting dressed. I was on FaceTime with my mom. I was getting dressed and I put this little thing, this tank top thing that like holds your belly in. And, and she's like, did you put on weight in Brazil? And I was like, Exactly. And, and I hadn't for the first time I hadn't. And I had put this on because I was putting some dress that needed it. And, but I had to go, why do you do this? Like, why? Do, because what I heard is this, you're fat. I don't love you. Why? Like, I heard all of that. And then like, I, I had the capacity. It was such a great trip. that I was like, mom, why do you do this? Like that comment? Like, but my brain, she, she, she didn't say those things. And I know in families, there was implicit things in fact, yeah. you know she, she went on to say i looked okay and great and but my brain filtered it right and and in that moment 
it was so helpful to shift and be like, is there another way to see the situation, right? Maybe she's concerned for me. And and that's what shifting is about is, is I mean, I don't know about you, but sometimes I'm really mean to myself. I like, I say things to myself that I'd never say to anyone I loved. And, and I have control of those things, right? They may come up, but I don't have to believe them all the time. And so that's really at the core shifting here is like, can we talk to ourselves the way we talk to those that we love? Because thoughts are not facts. I know it may be hard to believe, but you know, I don't think my mom thinks she doesn't love me. I'm sure she loves me. Yeah. Well, my version of that is is very similar. Mine is the fact that my hair is gray because everybody in our family turned gray by the time they were 20. So my mom's like 80% of the time if I have a haircut, like literally it's like I walk through the door, even if I've been gone for a month and just land, she's like, oh, you need to dye your hair. I was like, thanks, mom. It's nice to see you too. Right. Those comments, like, I think there's two sides of this conversation that I want people to notice. Like, you know, what what we say to people has such impact on their well-being. So like being able to shift your own perspective means you're going to affect people in a much more positive way, in a much more rewarding way. And the other one is the way we filter it just really hurts us. Like it really does. Mm -hmm. Well, let's talk about emotions in particular, because I, you know, I thought this was kind of an interesting juxtaposition in, in my highlights. You say when we're acting based on emotion, we're not engaging our thinking brain, which can lead us to drink more than we planned, eat excessively, neglect our responsibilities and even be unfaithful to our loved ones. But then you say you can't have a limited set of emotions and still live a rich and fulfilling life. Living a human existence means being open to all our emotions. And I thought to myself, wait, and I know you didn't contradict yourself. At the same time, I thought to myself, like, that's an odd juxtaposition. So explain that to me. Oh, I love it that you caught that. That's fantastic. So this is the deal. What we know scientifically is having Depth and range of emotions is really important. What I mean by this is when I say to you how you feel, and some people might say, well, I feel angry or I feel anxious. But what else do you feel a lot besides anxiety? But right now, when before I was talking to you, Serena, I, was, I felt a little anxious. I was like, I never talked to you before. Then I felt a little excitement. And then I feel a little curiosity. I was like, wow, what am I going to learn about this person and, and this podcast? And so Depth and range of emotions allows us to have a much deeper way of understanding the world, a much more um, healthy way to understand the world. Mm. And the out piece that you're asking about is this, this sense of like, when we are acting based on emotions, now this is fight, fight or freeze. This is when my five-year-old is throwing themselves in the floor because, you know, he has to watch more Spidey. And if he doesn't, the world is over. That kind of reaction to those emotional states is 100% not modulated or not regulated by our thinking brain. And the best way to see this is like the way that we do this in, in therapy that I love to, that I do for my son. It's like if you had two concentric circles coming together and one was a rational brain, the other one was the emotional brain. When you are in one end completely of the emotional brain, you're very far away from the rational. And when you're all the way in the rational, you're very far away from the emotional. In the middle is what we call wise mind, is when you can say to somebody, you know, this just happened to me, actually, I had a conference, somebody did something, I was really upset, and I was able to not just get to fight or fly, I was able to say, this is not okay, like, this is really hurtful for me, and quite honestly, hurts so much, I don't know how to respond right now, so I, I need to just walk for a second and think through this, because I'm just so crushed, and, and so I was able to feel my emotions. I was able to pause. I was able to say was not okay. And yet I needed space because I was very activated. Does, does that help? 
call yeah. those things? Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Let's talk about uh, alignment because this really struck me, particularly having grown up in the Indian culture. You said, you know, clinically, one of the reasons I see most people being stuck is the confusion between values and goals. Goals are what we plan to do, while values are intrinsic motivators that guide our actions. And you talk about the fact that there are these things that uh, prevent people from doing things that are aligned with their values, particularly other people's advice and culture. Talk to me about those because I, you know, know having growing up in the culture I did, you know, you're kind of like a, a certain set of values is drilled into you from the time you're a young kid. It's like doctor, lawyer, engineer, failure, you know, good grades are basically just expected, not negotiable, that kind of thing. So aligning is based on acceptance and commitment therapy. And the idea here is really being clear what you value and then aligning daily actions with those values. So if you care about health, you know, taking a walk. If you care about religion, you know, being part of some religion system. With culture sometimes, well, twofold. The first one is that we grab with a set of very clear cultural values and we never examine which one of them fit us as an adult, right? And like, what actually are the cultural values that really matter? For example, we talked about family before we recorded as a, a value that for Indian and Brazilian culture matters so much. That is true. That is, how do you define then family for you? And how do you align your actions? So for me, you know, Family is a value that's very important, but it doesn't mean that I don't get to do other things, right? So I think it's really being clear how you define the value, which ones from the culture applies actually to your day-to-day, and then prioritizing your life. Uh, right before this podcast, I took an hour out for lunch because it's school vacation, and my kid is home from school, and I'm back-to-back the rest of the day. And so I blocked out lunch, and I had an hour lunch with him, and that is aligning my daily actions with my values. And you know, because it matters, not because Brazilian culture tells me that family matters, not because American culture tells me that I'm not a good mother if I'm not home with my kid. Because for me, that lunch really means the most to me. Like his hugs, the conversation, we joke. And then I can be fully present with you here for another value of mine that matters, which is impact. I want the world to be able to have the skills in this book. And so then my entire day is actually organized in that way so that culture is not dictating what I do, so that my family or my work, you know, I, I found myself at times before just doing what was supposed to be the right thing. I remember when I got promoted to associate professor at Harvard Medical School, a colleague says, so now the clock begins and you have to do exactly this, this, this to be full professor. I said, I'm not sure I want to become a professor. Of course you want. Like you have to want to be full professor. How could you ever not want to be full professor? And I, I remember leaving that conversation with this colleague thinking, there's another way to define ambition and success. Maybe just for me. And I made up my mind. I don't know if I want to be full professor or not, but I can tell you that's not the value that matters the most to me today. Yeah. And so being able to separate that really helps because then I don't have to do what my colleague defines a success, which, by the way, would not have been this book, would be writing another hundred publications that nobody really reads. And so, be honest, you know, I think maybe there's a shot with this book having a little impact, just maybe. Well, I, I think that that was the one thing that really struck me when you were writing about this, where you, you sort of talked about the fact that the value evolved from ambition to impact. Um, and yeah, this is something I wonder about, like, you know, a world where you can see basically everybody's highlight reels on display, uh, you know, where social comparison is basically just 
prevalent in our everyday lives. How do you maintain awareness of what matters to you without being sort of just completely derailed by seeing all this other stuff? I love this question. I've given so much thought about this. Like, why was I really writing this book? And and how do I stay on this mission? Like, I have this mission of creating a bold world where everybody can have access to real science-driven skills to help them regulate themselves. And so I, there are a couple of things I do. The first one is everybody that I meet, I try, and they ask me about what I'm doing now in this. I share with them this vision, right? And I try as hard as I can to continue to only make decisions that are really aligned with this impact and, and never to lose sight that like, it's, I want a global impact and I want for the people that are hurting the most. I want the little kid or the middle high school kid that is an inner city to say, wait a minute, if I change my thinking, maybe just maybe I can have a different life. And notice, I didn't say a better life on purpose because I don't think there's a better life. I think the best life is the one that every day you try to go towards, you know, your values and you do the best you can. But life, life happens, shit happens, it's hard and it's not always pretty. But for me, I've been trying really hard to just go, if I'm doing this, is this towards this bigger impact? Is this goal, is this, is this value aligned, not goal aligned so that I don't derail? Because you're right. There's such a, I, I don't even know the word. It's such a pull to like do more, be more, be bigger, do this. And and honestly, right now, the only things I do and I say yes to have to be related to this bigger impact in a way that we bring the mental health crisis down. And I am sure I'm going to tremble and I'm sure it's going to be hard. But at least for now, like I feel pretty anchored, maybe because I just... I think this has been so hard for me. I, I wrote this in the book. I'm sure you read that people are so excited that I was writing this book about being bold. And I have to confess to you, like I sold the book. I was really excited. And in the proposal, you talked about some of the struggles that I had growing up. And then I, I handed in the first draft and my editor goes, and where are you in the book? I go, well, there's plenty. You know, I avoid it. I totally avoid it. She goes, Luana, um, we bought the book because like you have a story. And I was so scared sharing my personal story. You know, it's, it's challenging. I, just people that have seen me a certain light. This just happened yesterday. I was a Red Sox, um, game and I was talking to somebody that, um, I worked with before. And, and I finally said to this person, listen, I'm going to talk about my own trauma, um, in my childhood. And he like fell into tears and he's like, you don't understand. That would have helped me so much to know that you had actually gone through something. And, and so. I don't know. I guess I'm rambling to basically say the book is mission aligned so much that that's where I am right now. Well, let's talk about making this actionable because I, I see so many people who read books like yours. I know you referenced Simon Sinek's Start With Why uh, in the book as well. And we've had him here as a guest. And I always feel like, you know, a lot of these ideas, you know, sound good. They can feel really inspiring and new agey and they make us feel good, but they often don't lead to actual action, which is what makes the bold vision of reality. And so I know you've talked about the sort of four things that we need to consider when we create a bold steps plan. But more importantly, why do people get stuck in the sort of just dreaming and not doing? Because we are running away from this comfort as fast as we can. So I love this question because 
if people read this book and walk away with one thing, okay, just one thing, which is this, understanding when you're avoiding and choosing one of the skills to practice. So you could choose to shift, right? Which is talk to yourself like you're talking to your best friend. You can choose to approach, which is opposite action. So whenever anxiety tells you, don't go on that date, at least attempt to go on that date or align, which is daily actions with values. It doesn't matter which of the skills because all three of them are backed by science. What matters is this, to make it very simple. First, commit to identifying your avoidance because once you look at it, you can't unseen it. Like I, once I realized that every time I send an email fast was because I was avoiding, now I have a shot at changing my behavior because if I didn't know the function of it, I can't even change it. So for anybody listening to that, like just pause and try to just look at your avoidance. It's robbing you from your full life. I mean, I was stuck in the last two years of my life doing the same thing I used to do, miserable, right? Because I was refusing to look at my reality. And I have to say, facing reality does not mean we like reality. It just doesn't. But the once you face your reality, you identify your avoidance, then pick a skill and just practice it for a little bit and commit to it. Because otherwise, all we do is buy more bit, books, you know, implementation science talks about this, like the psychologist go to the workshop and is very excited, you know, sits there for the whole weekend. And then you get back to your office and you put the book on the shelf and you never look at it. I would be heartbroken if that's what people do with this book. Like, I really hope that I am inspiring people to just commit to one of the skills. Don't even try all three. If you really are stuck because you feel like your values are missing, commit to a line. They will start to get you unstuck and little by little, right? We don't build a six pack overnight. I don't have one either. So I don't actually know how to build one, but I know you need to go to the gym to get stronger. And that's what I'm asking people to do, gym for their brain. You actually offer four really great questions to talk about sort of what you call the bold steps plan, which is, you know, is it aligned? The why is it specific? The what is it doable? The how and is it scheduled? Sometimes I I wonder, especially given the world that we live in, where you get to read all these sort of stories about outliers, uh, you know, the guests on Oprah, you know, people on the show, that people often will get where they get stuck is in the doable part. Like I had a girl come to me, for example, who's literally didn't have a blog, didn't have an audience. And she was like, I want you to coach me. I want to write a self-published book that sells a million copies. And I was like, I don't know how to do that. And I'm like, and I'm not going to help you because I haven't done it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because you're going for all or nothing, right? This idea of doable, it has to be doable for today. And I think when people think about doable, they think about the outcome, not the journey. And and mm-hmm. I, you can't sell a million copies by just being in your house. My grandmother used to say this when I was on my shy moments and I wanted to go on dates and I wanted to date, and but I wouldn't go out, right? She says, do you think somebody's just going to knock on the door and ask you out? Like you have to be out in the world doing something towards wanting to date to actually go on a date. And I think that's what you're talking about. This idea of like, can we define doable as something that you can do today, this week, that's aligned with your biggest why, right? If you, if you know the why and you know the what, you have to make it doable. Otherwise, all we do is the same thing and expect different outcomes. And, and that just maintains us being stuck. Well, I appreciate the fact that you emphasize the idea of doable today, because I think that that basically reduces the scope of what seems to be this gargantuan thing that people find so intimidating. I mean, my entire career has just been a series of Peter Sims would call little bets, things that I knew I could do within a week, 
that just gave me enough feedback to determine whether I should continue doing them. I love that idea. I, I, th- that's how I think exactly. That, that, you know, you, you, you're, you're testing, right? And you're creating like, this is what I want in the world. I'm going to try this for this week. Then you look at the data. That's the other piece that you just said that's beautiful. You sort of look at what the outcome was. If it was consistent with what you expect, keep doing it. If not, throw it out and go do something else. Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, I could talk to you all day. Uh, this feels like a very deep rabbit hole, but in the interest of time, I want to finish with my final question, which is how we finish all of our interviews. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? Showing up fully as you, like just knowing the parts of you, knowing your strengths as you and your weakness and just, just being you. We all have a gift. And the sooner you start to do it, the sooner you are living your full, most beautiful and state of life. Amazing. Well, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and share your story, your wisdom, and your insights with our listeners. Where can people find out more about you, your work, the book, and everything else that you're up to? Serene, first, let me thank you. Like, you're such a pleasure. I had listened to your podcast, but of course, never came here. And so such a pleasure and an honor. Thank you. So wonderful. Um, And folks can find me at www.drluana.com. And on social media, Dr. Luana Marquez, um, both on Instagram and TikTok and Twitter. And please connect and join um, the cause and send me questions. I'm delighted to just, you know, launch in this book. But most importantly, I just want to connect with people and create a community where we can be our boldest, most, most amazing selves. Amazing. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. 
head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.